Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Today, this morning, is the feast of Christ the King, Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. Earlier this week, as I prepared for this Mass, I asked Jason Hart, if we don't sing Crown Him with Many Crowns, is it really Christ the King? And he promised me we'd sing it, but I was overeager. So be on the lookout for it later in the Mass. I bring this song up and I begin with this song because I love this song. I love the way it sounds. I love how it makes me feel. I love what it reveals of the world. But can I tell you what I love most of all? I love the last verse because it reveals something unique and we never really get to hear it. But this is what it sounds like. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. You catch that title? Did you, did you see what it points out? Let me massage out the revelation a little bit. We should crown him. We should. Earlier this week, I was, I was going through the various addresses that Pope Benedict gave on this feast day throughout his pontificate. And nearly every year began by mentioning that this feast comes at the end, at the crown of the liturgical year, if you will. You see what he did there? The crown of the liturgical year. It got me reflecting upon our liturgies throughout time, throughout the year, imagining them as persons in a procession. Can you imagine that with me for a minute? Humor me, please. It's early. You can imagine each of the feasts of the year striding down the aisle of time. Advent and the Nativity taking the lead, just like our own liturgies with incense, with gold and myrrh, proclaiming the one who comes. Those are followed by the feasts of the martyrs, Stephen and the innocents, Christ's life and his death on display with the saints through Lent and Holy Week, through the great Paschal Feast of Easter, proclaiming the good news, through hot summer months and brisk autumn days, the players proceed, all saints and souls, and the procession nears its end as the presider approaches. Christ the King at the end of the liturgical procession, the culmination of the cavalcade. In asking you to imagine this, 
I'm not trying to suggest a frivolous or useless exercise, but to really understand the value of the image of the procession, there's a few things you need to remember about a procession. The first thing to remember is that the greatest person is always at the end. The greatest is always last. You know, if, if we were having Mass with the bishop, he would be at the end of the procession. Or with the Pope, he would be even behind the bishop. Because the greatest is always the last. When I was talking through this homily yesterday with Father DiCarlo in our living room, he said, yeah, the greatest is always the last. Like, who comes at the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? And I looked at him unsure, and he looked back at me bewildered that I was unsure, and said, Santa, with a voice that silently suggested, you dummy. But whether that example makes sense to you or not, it's true that in a procession, the greatest place of honor is always reserved at the end of the line. The greatest place of honor is always reserved at the end of the line. The second thing to remember about a procession is that those in procession are moving towards something. They have a destination. You do not process just to process. That is called going on a walk, and it's a different thing. A procession goes somewhere. Everyone moves together from a place to a place for a purpose. So in this image, why is the final spot reserved for Christ the King? And where is this procession leading? It moves with methodical steps to the King's own court so that the scriptures we heard today might be fulfilled. We heard Daniel. As the visions during the night continued, I saw one like a son of man coming. Quick side note, most of the time, sometimes, when we hear Jesus speak about himself as the Son of Man in the Gospel, we think, oh, how great. He's so humble. He thinks he's just a Son of Man. But the only time we hear that title proclaimed in the Scripture is in Daniel, in this passage. One like a Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven. When this Son of Man reached the Anointed One and was presented before Him, the One like a Son of Man received dominion and glory and kingship. All peoples, all nations, all languages serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. It's going nowhere and his kingship shall not be destroyed. Indeed, he told Pilate today, my kingdom does not belong to this world, and my kingdom is not here yet. But already rumors of the kingdom that was not there, with the king who was not crowned, had reached Pilate's ears and the sound of whispered prayers reverberating through time, thy kingdom come, stretched back to the past 
and made the Roman procurator shake in his sandals. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. A prayer present and prescient, prayed by many each day. And it does come, that kingdom. As each day passes, each day, the aisle brings us closer and closer as the procession proceeds. This eminence of the kingdom has always been felt by Pilate, by the first Christians, by monks in the desert, even by great men and women. There was one man of particular notoriety, uh, perhaps we would say he was infamous, 200 years ago named Napoleon. Heard of him? Read about him? Know the, the hat, short, angry? Napoleon, on his deathbed in exile, gave a statement about his ambition, a statement that paid remarkable witness to Christ the King. He said this, I have been accustomed to put before me the examples of Alexander the Great and Caesar with the hope of rivaling their exploits and living in the minds of men forever. Yet, after all, in what sense does Caesar, in what sense does Alexander live? Who knows or cares anything about them? At best, nothing but their names is known, for who among the multitude of men who hear or who utter their names really knows anything about their lives or their deeds or attaches to those names any definite idea? Nay, even their names do but flit up and down the world like ghosts mentioned only on particular occasions or from accidental associations. The chief home of Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great is the schoolroom. They have a foremost place in boys' grammar books and exercises. They're splendid examples of themes. They form writing copies. So low is heroic Alexander fallen. So low is imperial Caesar. But on the contrary, he's reported to have continued. There is just one name in the whole world that lives. It is the name of one who passed his years in obscurity and who died a malefactor's death. Eighteen hundred years have gone since that time, but still it has its hold upon the human mind. It has possessed the world, and it maintains possession. Amid the most various nations, under the most diversified circumstances, in the most cultivated and in the rudest races and intellects, in all classes of society, the owner of that great name reigns. High and low, rich and poor acknowledge him. Millions of souls are conversing with him, are venturing at his word, are looking for his presence. Palaces, sumptuous, innumerable, are raised to his honor. His image, in its deepest humiliation, is triumphantly displayed to the proud city. 
in the open country, at the corners of streets or the tops of mountains. It sanctifies the ancestral hall, the closet, and the bedchamber. It is the subject for the exercise of the highest genius in the imitative arts. It is worn next to the heart in life. It is head before, held before the failing eyes in death. Here then is one who is more than a mere name. He is no empty fiction. He is a substance. He's dead and gone, but still lives as the living energetic thought of successive generations and as the awful motive power of a thousand great events. He has done without effort what others with lifelong heroic struggles have not done. Can he be less than divine? Who is he but the creator himself who is sovereign over his own works, towards whom our eyes and our hearts turn intrinsically because he is our Father and God. Greater than them all, Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon. Greater than them all is Christ the King. And that is why our eyes and our hearts do turn toward him and why our feet move in procession towards the kingdom. Hey, y'all, we were made for that kingdom. It is our destiny and it's our destination, which means that the procession we imagined earlier is not just a procession of feasts through the liturgical year. Rather, it's a procession of souls through history. We are the ones moving in procession. We are the ones proceeding and proclaiming Christ along with all Christians from all time. Indeed, as the song suggests, he is the Lord of years, the potentate of time. So today, look around you. Take a good look. Every person, place, and thing will eventually come to the steps of the sanctuary and be seen by the gaze of the king. The heavenly anthem will drown out all distractions, lies, pride, and false claimants to the throne. And you and I will be there as each soul takes off the crown of his own sovereignty and places it upon the head of Christ the King, crowning him with many crowns. And there will be no sadness, no death, no suffering. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. All scandal will be evicted as the accuser of our brothers is cast out. This is a certainty. This is the purpose of history. And this, O Christian soul, is your destiny. Amen.